when when we lived there in the 1980s, when we lived in New Jersey, uh, we would we would if we had been anywhere else, we would fly into Newark and then drive south on the New Jersey Turnpike to get home. And if you, I understand it's changed now because they've got Easy Pass, but but back in those days, when you first left the airport, you know, you wind around to get out of the airport, but then when you leave the airport and find the exit that takes you to the New Jersey Turnpike, the first highway sign you saw, the very first sign you saw said, slow down, get ticket. (laughs) And maybe you can guess what that sign meant, but it was ambiguous that signs are ambiguous, that, that they've got a little bit of space and they're trying to put across a complicated message, and so signs are ambiguous. Um, that, that it has a meaning. People put signs up for a reason. They want you to see something. They want you to know something. And at the same time, um, some signs need more interpretation than others. And that was one that I think needed a lot of interpretation. And I bring this up because Jesus talks about a sign in our lesson today. We've been, we've been in this uh, conversation now for most of the summer. We began at the end of June and we'll wrap it up the week after, after uh, Labor Day. Um, so we've got two more weeks left, but um, we're in this middle section of Jesus's, I mean, uh, of the biography of Jesus called Matthew. So we're in there and Jesus is talking about the way people respond to him. And one of the things that we've seen is that people um, did this. They asked for a sign or in some cases, they they saw miracles and didn't respond despite the miracles, and so so that's that's the um, that's the background we're coming at today as we as we um, look at our message is that all right <laughs> good luck following from behind because I I don't have my pad here so all right very thinking ahead here. All right, so where am I? So, so, um, so back up a moment. Oh boy. All right, so where was I? So, um, so, uh, so there was a, um, all right. Okay. So, um, signs. We're talking about signs and he just got completely flustered for a minute. So, um, but he's, he's, he's gathering it back up. So, so Jesus is talking about science. And one of the things Jesus does is he tells, he tells people back at the beginning of chapter 11 is he says, you don't need signs. Just read your Bible. Go back and, and look at the Bible. There's all these, um, uh, uh, prophecies that have spoken about the Messiah. They told, they told you what the Messiah would do. Look at what I've done and that will persuade you. And, and they didn't do that. They, they, um, they regularly wanted a sign instead. And I understand why, right? Signs are more fun, right? Nobody wants to go through the whole set of prophets. There's lots of prophets. Um, to go through them line by line and try and find kind of a punch list of, okay, well, this is what the Messiah will do. And so nobody wants to do that. Not even these legal experts. And they probably got the Bible committed to memory. And even so, who wants to actually just kind of go through a list and then follow Jesus around checking things off until you finally decide, right? I understand why people would say, look, just, just, you know, cut through the fog, give me a sign. Are you the Messiah or not? Are you the person that God sent to make the world better? So, I mean, I understand this. We, we want, we want signs. It's, it's easier. It's less hassle. And I think it's a, it's a reasonable thing for people to do. There's a, celebrity atheist, and I was watching a, an interview with him, um, and unfortunately I can't remember the details, so I remember this one one fact 
which is, he had this saying, he said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. He said that, that um, if you're going to make a claim that God exists, that the world was created by God, back up please, back up, you're giving it away. All right, and if I had my pad, you wouldn't need to guess what's in my head. So, um, so he said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. He said, he said that, that you need to justify the claim that God is there. But, but the, the person who was hosting this debate said, okay, well, give me an example. What would be extraordinary evidence? You know, you're, you're a skeptic. You don't believe in God. What would persuade you? And, and again, I can't remember the details, but what he said is some, some violation of the laws of nature, you know, you know, birds flying backwards, or I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something that, that he said, you know, that would persuade me. And then the, um, the host said, okay, so you're telling me that if you saw this thing happen, you know, letters in the sky, whatever it was, if you saw that, then you'd be persuaded that God existed. And he said, actually, no, I think I was hallucinating. <laughs> and because, because what, what he was really saying is extraordinary claims require evidence you cannot possibly give me. He was, he was saying, I will always shift the goal posts, that this is what um, really is the truth, that extraordinary claims do require um, extraordinary goalpost moving. This is just the way people are. It's not only the way people are, it's the way people are in the Bible. In fact, um, in, in, the book of, um, in the book of Judges, we read about uh, uh, a man named Gideon. God calls him and says, I want you to liberate the people from their, um, their uh, uh, oppressors. And <clears throat> Gideon says, all right, but I need a sign. And so God, God gives him a sign. God doesn't just squish him like a grape. God actually says, says, sure, I'll give you a sign. And then Gideon says, uh, after he sees the sign, Gideon says, don't be angry with me. Please let me speak just one more time. Please let me make just one more test. So he moves the goalpost. He says, God, this will persuade me. You're calling me to do this thing. And then God does it. And he says, okay, and this other thing will also persuade me. So, so Gideon does this. And the amazing thing about Gideon is Gideon is not punished for this, this, um, uh, goalpost moving. In fact, Gideon is listed in the, in the book of Hebrews in, in this list of the great heroes of the faith. So Gideon, despite the evidence, is considered actually pretty good in this area that that he moves the goalposts only a little bit compared to the way most most of us do do so so signs don't work that's the problem signs are ambiguous you can always come up with a reason why the sign really isn't the best sign and let me let me try it again let me let me have a do over and I'll come up with a better sign and extraordinary claims always produce extraordinary goalpost shifting so so that's the problem with signs and despite that these legal experts come to Jesus and they say, we want to sign even so. Just like Gideon, we want to sign. So that's where we pick things up in um, verse 38. It says, at that time, some of the legal experts and the Pharisees requested of Jesus, teacher, we would like to see a sign from you. And Jesus probably sighs and says, you of all people, you are the legal experts. You know how this works. You know that signs never work. If you had been following me around, checking off things like I told you to back at the beginning of chapter 11, you would have heard me when I condemned those three towns. I said, the towns where I did the most miracles are the ones that believed the least. So Jesus says, look, you know this, you know this from the Hebrew scriptures, and if you had been following me around, you would have seen it from my own ministry, that miracles don't persuade people. So, you ask for a sign. He says, you know what? Why not? He says, 
An evil and unfaithful generation searches for a sign. Now, what is that? Sounds pretty. That sounds pretty harsh. But what, this is prophetic language. This is the language that that Jesus would appropriately use to say you're acting like everybody else all through the scriptures who has demanded signs of God. And in fact, we talked about Gideon a minute ago in the in the book of Judges. After Gideon dies, we read that that that's exactly what the people did. The the language is in um, uh, in chapter eight of Judges. It says when Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves with their Baals and made Baal bury their God. So the, the language of the, the Hebrew scriptures is that is that you're being unfaithful. And Jesus is saying, you know how this works. You guys are the legal experts. You've read your Bible. You know this is what always happens. God does something. You're all happy for a little bit. And then you say, hey, you know what? Let's go chase after these Baals or whatever. He's saying, this is what you do. You know better than to ask for signs, but you've asked for a sign all right, I'll tell you what, I will give you a sign. He says, but it won't receive any sign except one. You do get the one sign. So what is that sign? He says, it's the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, he's about to explain it to us. He says, just as Jonah was in the whale's belly for three days and three nights, so the human one will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So that is the sign of Jonah. And we'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. But he says, he says, you will get this sign. And they would have been familiar with this, the book of Jonah. They, they did read the prophets. They just didn't like the thought of making a list and following Jesus around. So they knew what he was talking about here when he said Jonah was, was in the belly of the fish. Now I mentioned the Jonah earlier in our, in our service today. Jonah is a prophet. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that they are, that, that God has judged them. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. Jonah gets on a boat and goes the other direction. He goes across the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish. So he goes as far as he can go, except halfway, uh, somewhere along the way, uh, a storm comes up and um, they, the, the sailors throw everything overboard, but it, the, the, the ship is in trouble. So they finally throw Jonah overboard and God provides this fish. And so Jonah gets a, a nice spiritual retreat for three days while he thinks things over and, and makes these great prayers and so forth. And then the fish spits him up on the beach and he goes off to, to uh, Nineveh. Nineveh is not on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Nineveh is uh, what today we would say like um, uh, Kurdistan or northern Iraq. So it's far from the Mediterranean Sea. So the fish um, uh, spits up uh, Jonah and then he walks to Nineveh. He's learned his lesson. He's not going to get back on another ship. So he goes to Nineveh. Jesus says, the same thing, that that three days, right? Focus on that, that, that you know that from, from your Bible. Um, here's what's going to happen. The human one will be in the, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So who, who is the human one? And again, this is from a different prophecy. They would have been familiar with this. This is from the book of Daniel. This is the name Jesus often calls himself, and it refers to the book of Daniel because Daniel has these visions, and he sees he sees God, the, the Ancient of Days, on his throne, and then he sees in his vision, he sees one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient one. So just an ordinary guy, somebody who looked normal, not the ancient of days, not, not, you know, the, the winged creatures and everything else in this vision. This is just a guy. Okay. A human being, one like a human being coming with the heavenly clouds. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him and rule, glory and kingship were given to him. This is the Messiah. Daniel had a vision of the Messiah who God would would use to bring 
about the the good purposes of God on earth. That that the the world's a messed up place. You know, turn on your TV. You know, scroll on your phone. Five minutes, the world's a messed up place, and God is putting it to right. God had promised through the prophets like Daniel that God would send a Messiah to to um, to address the problems, to fix, to put right the things that are wrong with the world. So he says, he says the human one will spend three days in the belly of the earth, um, um, in, in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he says, this is the sign of Jonah. Now, the, the problem for them is it hasn't happened yet. He says, watch for that sign. And they, they will have the opportunity when they, when they put Jesus to death and when he is raised to, to see that. And, um, we will, um, we'll see what, what he's getting at there in a minute. But, um, but I want to finish up what he says. The, the, he, he goes on and he says, um, uh, the citizens of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it as guilty because they changed their hearts and lives in response to Jonah's preaching. And look, someone greater than Jonah is here. He says, they didn't need signs that the fish spit him up on, spit Jonah up on the beach, but then he walked a couple of hundred miles inland. No fish is involved. No, no, mir- no miraculous signs involved. They just heard um, this preaching that God had judged them and they decided to change their hearts and lives in response to the preaching. They didn't need a sign and they will stand up and judge this generation and said, you guys are always looking for signs. And he says, he says, in the same way, the queen of the south will be raised up by God at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from a distant line to distant land to hear Solomon's wisdom. And look, someone greater than Solomon is here. So he says again, no, no miracles were involved. Solomon wasn't working miracles. That's not why she came to, uh, to, to visit Solomon. She came because the word of Solomon's wisdom had spread as far as the, the, the queen of the south, uh, the queen of Sheba, her realm. And so she wanted to go see what this was. So, so, um, uh, Jesus is saying these people, they didn't need signs and neither should you. You, you shouldn't need signs any more than, than you should. Than, than they did, but you're going to get one. You're going to get the sign. So, what is the sign? It is the sign that that the human one, the the Messiah, would spend three days in the earth. So he's talking about the grave that his body will lie in until Easter morning. Now, this is the central idea of the Christian faith that that Easter morning does not prove that there is life after death. Everybody in the first century, except for one group called the Sadducees. Everybody in Jesus' audience always believed that there was life after death, that that was something that was just the way they understood um, the things of God, that there would be life after death. That's not what they were impressed by. What this proved when Jesus rose is that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, that Christianity is the belief that Jesus, the, the man Jesus, was the human one, was the Christ, was the Messiah. Those are all different ways of saying the one that God sent to put the world to right. That by fulfilling this sign, by by lying in the grave for three days and then rising on Easter morning, Jesus proved not that there was life after death, but he proved that he was the king. He was the Messiah. So this is the central claim of Christianity. This is the difference between Christianity and uh, some other religion that doesn't have the word Christ or Messiah in it. So um, uh, the Apostle Paul says, for example, in um, 
in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, I pass on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures, was buried and rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He says this, this sign that the, the human one would lie in the grave for three days is the central idea of Christianity. It is what distinguishes Christianity from any other belief system that the Messiah, the one that God sent to set the world to right, would be would die in line with the scriptures as foretold by all the prophets. And back up, please. Um, and um, he would be buried, and he would rise on the third day. Now, the people that Jesus is speaking to, Jesus has not yet done this, right? He says, "You'll get the same sign that everybody else gets. You'll get the same sign." They haven't seen it yet, but they will. Now, the difference is we haven't seen it, and neither had the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says there. He says, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. The Apostle Paul says, I wasn't in Jerusalem that day. I didn't see any of this. I didn't see Jesus rise. I didn't see him get crucified. I, I, you know, came to the faith later than that. And so when I talked to the people who were there, I said, tell me, Give me the backstory here. I've had this road to Damascus thing. Tell me the backstory. Tell me what I need to know. And they passed on to him as of most importance, first importance, he says. This is the thing you have to hold on to, Paul. And he says, when he went to Corinth, he told the Corinthians the same thing. I passed on to you what they passed on to me. That Christ died, that Christ was buried, and Christ rose on the third day in fulfillment of scriptures. This is the central claim of Christianity. And Paul goes on to say in the same letter, um, just a couple of verses later, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, if that doesn't hold true, our preaching is useless, then your faith is useless. And then he repeats himself just a few verses later. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. This is the central claim of Christianity. It's why Jesus says it is the sign that everyone receives, that he is, he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is not just some prophet or miracle worker. He is the one, the human one that God sent to put the world to right. So, that's the central claim of Christianity. That is the sign that we have in hindsight and this first audience had in foresight. So Jesus is talking about that sign. Now, the question for us is, what do we do with it? Does it mean that there's no point in praying for anything? If Jesus says, you get the same sign. In fact, I've already given the sign 2,000 years ago. You already got the sign. And, you know, he's not saying you can't pray. But he's saying, don't pray for signs. You've got the best sign. You've got the central, the essential sign of Christianity already. Don't pray for that. But you can pray for help. By all means. In fact, Jesus makes a makes an amazing promise in in John's um, uh, biography. Um, he says, uh, John sixteen, coming up soon. Uh, yeah, keep going. This is why I can't be <laughs> leaving my iPad somewhere else. So one more. Okay. So he Jesus says in John sixteen, he says. I assure you the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Up till now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be complete. Jesus is saying you can have things. You can ask for wisdom. You can ask for strength. You can ask for uh, insight. You can ask for a better relationship. You can ask for a date. 
You can ask for things, and I'm promising you help. But don't waste your breath on signs. I can't give you a better sign than I've already given you. I can't give you something that is more unambiguous, that is less ambiguous. This is the sign that identifies who I am and what I'm doing. There's no better sign to ask for. So Jesus says, don't ask for anything else. You can ask for help, but don't ask for another sign. There's no better sign. I've already given you the best sign there is. So help is still available. No more signs doesn't mean no more help. So that's the first the first thing we can take from this. The second thing is we can remember why Jesus was stressing this, why he was pointing out he is in fact the human one. He is the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the Christ. He is the one that God sent, the Ancient of Days sent and gave him rule and dominion and authority. Why did he do that? So he could set the world to right, so that we could have a world without the kind of problems we see in this world. Now Jesus said that he would not complete that work until he returned. But he said it's already underway, that it is growing among us. The kingdom is in our midst, and it is growing in secret. Jesus talked about it in terms of things that you don't see happening. He talked about um, yeast that is that is uh, uh, growing in a, in a batch of dough. And he said in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 4, he said, God's kingdom is like someone who scattered seed on the ground and then sleeps and wakes night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, but the farmer doesn't know how. The farmer isn't like watching it and saying, okay, this is happening, but just day by day, there it is. It's growing a little bit. He sees, yeah, it's changing over time. And that's the promise Jesus makes about his kingdom, that his kingdom is coming. And and at the end of this age, it will come in its completeness. That all the sources of of heartache and violence and, and, and everything that is wrong with this current age will be will be sorted out. We talked about the sorting last last week. Jesus is saying that's coming, but it's already here in secret. So something we could ask as we as we think about this passage is okay, if God's kingdom is coming, what is my role in that? What is what where am I in Christ's kingdom? Where where do I fit? What is what has he got for me to do? As a Christian, as somebody who has accepted the sign, someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, where do I fit in this? What is my role? If, if Jesus is already bringing the, the, the age to come into being, uh, piecemeal, small, invisibly, what is my role in that? What would he have me do to, to extend the kingdom of God in my particular area? What's my role in Christ's kingdom? But that works a different way too, because, because we are part of this world, and that this idea that we are, that, that the Christ has, has died and been raised has an impact on us. We have to ask ourselves, where is Christ's kingdom in me? We have to ask, how does that actually play out in me? And, um, in Galatians, Paul says, that's two, there we go. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says that I participate in that life and death, the, the, the death and the new life, that I have died in Christ and the life I live now, I live 
is, is, is Christ living in me? So we can ask ourselves, okay, in the same way that Christ's kingdom is coming in secret in the world, we can ask, how is it coming in me? What in me has died? What in me no longer has any authority over me? What, what addictions or sinful patterns of thought or action, what, what in me has died in Christ? And in what way is Christ's life manifest in me? How is Christ manifest in me? So we can ask, where in me is Christ's kingdom? In the same way we can ask, where am I in the kingdom of Christ in the world? So we can be asking ourselves, because Christ has died and because he rose, what is my role in the world? What is my role in this new kingdom that he is ushering in? And what is the sign? What is the work that the kingdom is doing in me? Because the life that I live now is Christ living in me. So, the last thing is I think we can, we can ask ourselves, Jesus is talking to church people. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and legal experts. Legal experts got paid. They, that was their job. That was their day job. They were, they were the legal experts. They were the, the religious experts of their day, and it was their job. The Pharisees, they were amateurs. They, they were, they were, um, in, in the, the intramural legal experts that they just loved being legal experts, but they didn't get paid for it. Jesus is talking to these experts, and he says, you know what? Gentiles, people from Nineveh, the, the queen of the south, people who have no relationship with God, they get this. They are open. They are capable of learning. And you religious experts aren't. And I think as religious experts, as people who claim to be in a relationship with Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, which side of this um, dichotomy am I on? Am I, am I on the religious expert side that, that misses the thing that God is doing? Or am I in the Gentiles side who is capable of being persuaded? The other thing it shows is that, is that God sent Jonah to talk to the Ninevites, to, to, to preach to them, to proclaim judgment so that they could repent, so they could change their lives. God has a heart for the outsiders. God encouraged, um, God, God spread his, his um, wisdom from Solomon all the way to the Queen of the South because God has a heart for the outsiders. And so as we wrestle with the question of, are we teachable? Are we like these religious experts who need signs? Or are we like the outsiders who don't? One of the things we can ask ourselves is, maybe I need to talk to some outsiders. Maybe I need to bounce things off them and say, look, this is the way my faith is working out in my life. You know, I think a lot of us have some idea of, of evangelism is me going to somebody else and saying, here, you know, you know, Romans or, you know, whatever. I've got, I've got my little persuasive uh, formula that I'm going to give you. And maybe something we can think about, maybe a better type of evangelism is to say, look, this is what my faith is teaching me. And I wanted to bounce it off you because I think God speaks to, to, to Gentiles sometimes better than he speaks to religious experts because we're not in a place where we can listen. So I wanted to bounce this idea off you because I know you're an outsider. And I just want to throw that out there. That's something that we can, we can do as a church. We can say, we can say, how about that? How about this? 
How about what God is doing here? So where where am I in the kingdom? What is my role in the kingdom? How can I bring grace and mercy as part of God's kingdom into the darkness of this world? And how is the life of Christ manifest in me? Where in me is God's kingdom? And how can I, as a religious expert, as as a Christian, as somebody who believes in the sign of Jonah, how can I extend that invitation, that that questioning perspective to the non-believers, to the queens of Sheba, to the citizens of Nineveh? We get the same sign as everybody else gets. The question is, what will we do with it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... Um, that even though we are living 2,000 years and half a world away from the place where Jesus walked, we have access to the same sign that he gave those legal experts that day. Lord, help us to, help us to trust to, to not perpetually be demanding signs, but to say, you know what, I'm, I'm persuaded and now I want to know what you're going to do in me and through me. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.